Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of To The Point Podcast. Um, today, we are here for a special live edition of the podcast. Uh, as always, I'm Noah Warren, but today I'm so happy to be joined by a man who's done a lot in the game of hockey, uh, from scouting, a coach, a former player, and now uh, helping you know the future of the game, you know, developing them into the players that, uh, you know, the all-time greats that we've seen throughout, throughout history of hockey. But um, today I'm joined by... Daryl Young. Daryl, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for the invite, Noah. I appreciate it. Um, so, Daryl, as a as a youngster, can you pinpoint when you, it sounds cliche, but when you fell in love with the game of hockey? Well, that was easy. I got two older brothers. Um, so anytime you're a younger brother and you watch your older brothers doing things that they love to do, then you start doing it. And my father was a, was a big hockey fan and Love the game, and I, I don't remember a point date, but I, I just know from day one that uh, you know I could walk. I was involved playing somehow with uh, whether it's standing in the doorways, my brother shot at me or shot pucks at me or balls at me or whatever. But uh, it was always part of my life. I can't remember my life would be without it. Put it that way. Who did you uh, root for uh, growing up? Oh, I was a Bruins fan. You know, I loved Jerry Cheevers, and that was my big guy. And I'm a big Bobby Orr fan, and. Phil Esposito and, you know, th those guys were the guys I really, you know, thought were, you know, the cats, uh, meow, you know, back then, right? So they were, they had a good teams in the early 70s, especially, they had those Stanley Cup champion teams and guys like Derek Sanderson and, you know, when Wayne Cashman, Ken Hodge and Fred Stanfield and Gary Doak, you name it, you know, Dallas Smith, I could go on forever of those guys, right? Right. Um, so obviously you, you played growing up, uh, including playing at Dalhousie. But um, while you were playing, did you ever think that, you know, you, you would be a coach? Did, did a coach ever, you know, did your coaches ever say, you know, you'd be really good at this? Or did you see a natural progression there? I don't think anybody ever said I was good at, could be good at it. Um, but I remember being 12 years old coaching. And I remember the, uh, a gentleman in my neighborhood who was coaching bad when I was in high school asked me to help out. And so I've been basically involved coaching since I was 12. So I'm right. 50 years. <laughs> That's 51 <laughs> years going on now. Right. So but I always helped out young when I was younger. Like I said, I was in high school helping coach the Batham team. You know, and you always get like you're you're always taught to be give back to the game. Is there so many people that give so much time to see you develop that if you get the opportunity to do it, then you should. Right. Um so as a before you get to the Dalhousie level, what, what was the most rewarding experience you had as a minor league coach? Before Dell, uh, you know, there, there was a team I, I was, uh, I came over, I took over the uh, Halifax McDonald's, a triple A midget team, and now U18, I guess you have to say. Uh, I took them over when I was like 21 years, 22 years old, and halfway through the year, and they were fighting for a playoff spot. We got in the playoffs, and we did real well, got to the semifinals. We won a tournament. Um, that was a big, big thing for me. Then the following year, I, I coached Junior B, um, and then uh, you know I, got, I was still the, I was still in university at the time. I was coaching Junior B hockey. Um, then there was the Shannon Park Huskies, which were an affiliate of the Cole Harbor Colts, for hosting the Centennial Cup. And we had you know in the vicinity of uh, I think it was 13 first year kids that still played midget hockey on our team and. We were very competitive at that time. So those were some pretty exciting times for me. 
you mentioned like starting your coaching at, you know, 11, 12 years old, but then co- even coaching major midget at 21, 22 uh, is very young. Um, do you, we start, we're starting to see more and more younger coaches get involved in, in pro sports. Do you think that's a good thing overall for the game? Well, I think it's good to have young people involved. Um, you know, there's something we said before experience. I know when I was, you know, I was 26 years old when I was named head coach at the house university. And even though I coached midget and junior and senior hockey at that time, I still had, when I was a former assistant coach at university, I still had a lot to learn. I mean, there's so much to learn about the game, you know, but, but, but people also think that there's so much to learn about the X and noses of the game. And I thought I was a good skills teacher and I thought I could, I developed into a better X and O coach in terms of teaching systems. But the one part that the kids forget is that it's all about personal relationships and how, how the psychology of the game and how to build up people and how to build up kids and, and develop them into people that are going to be hardworking and responsible individuals. Right. And so, you know, tying that together, how was it dealing with, uh, you know, 20 to 24 year old uh, males? Uh, you know, I'm 22. I know I'm not the easiest person to deal with in the world. So <laughs> how is that on, on a daily basis for you to kind of uh, be entwined with what they're doing school wise, you know, partying, what have you, and then but keeping them on task of playing the game of hockey? Well, when I was coaching at Dell, I actually had players who were older than me. I mean, oh, really? So that was that was experience in itself, uh, especially you know when and most of the guys that some of the guys actually were coming as freshmen as I was leaving, and then I was assistant coach for a couple of years. So it took it took a while for me to develop my own philosophy and the rules that I wanted to implement. Uh, it took time to develop those. I thought what I was doing earlier was the right thing, but after a couple of years, you learn. I got to change some things here and you start to learn. And um, I think it took a few years. I think by year three of coaching at the house university, I pretty had what I wanted down in terms of structure as a coach, what I believe was important as a coach. The, the other thing that was felt real important is that no, my first year at Dell um, at Christmas time, when I should have been away recruiting, I jumped in my car before the, before the four lane highway through the Valley, New Brunswick. And I went down the, to watch BU and BC meet with the coaches there up the University of Maine and see what they're doing because I want to learn. And I spent, you know, and I had a habit of reading a book a week about guys like Rick Pitino from basketball and, right. you know, you know and, and, and Shoemaker and uh, Schumacher from uh, Michigan and, and football and just to find out what, what those coaches, what their philosophies were and the things that they held really high in terms of their standards as coaches. That, that's uh, super interesting. Which, which coach had the biggest effect on you, you'd say? Uh, from a book or from person? <laughs> uh, let, let's, let's, go, let's go with book, and then you can say uh, in, in person as well, because I'm interested. No, no, in- I think my book was the uh, was it Bo Schumacher, where it was, was the uh, coach of Michigan. Uh, State mm-hmm. and had a great uh, career there. He wrote a great book. And there's a lot of it, the attributes for success that he emphasized that I try to use with my own team. I thought he was right. a great book to read. And, you know, and uh, Lou Holtz was another one from a football mm-hmm. point of view. Uh, Rick Pitino from basketball, obviously. Uh, Rick Carlisle from basketball. Those were guys I, I kind of leaned on uh, early in my career to, to read about the boat and find as much as I can about. Uh, from a player point of view, I, I would say, I have to say Pierre Paget. Um, 
at the Hodge University up here, was ahead of his time. Uh, he was a lot like me, became the coach of the Dallas young age, um, ended up coaching the, with the Olympic team and ended up coaching the Calgary Flames and San Jose Sharks and Minnesota North Stars and Quebec Nordiques. And uh, he's always been a great mentor of, of mine. I try to, you know, follow his footsteps in, in some ways. And, uh, and he taught me a lot about teaching the game. That's the, that's the, that was a big part of my development as, as a coach. In all your time at Dow, who was the best, who was the hardest player that you had to game plan against? <laughs> oh boy. Uh, there, there's some good players. Uh, Claude Vilgrain, uh, my first year at Dow, ended up playing in the National Hockey League with, uh, with, uh, with New Jersey and Calgary, played for the Olympic team. Uh, I got a video. He, he, I, he, I, ironically, and now I work with him. He's on our, he's on our staff with Maloney Thompson Sports Management, and mm-hmm. he works out of Calgary for his teacher skill. But he sends me a video of him, of him going end to end and scoring a goal in, in, in the league finals. My first year at Dell, we lost in the uh, AUS finals uh, to Moncton in three games, and he, he sends me a clip of him scoring that goal, and he says he sees a clip of me sitting behind the bench. My hands on my hips. I had long hair back then, and <laughs> he was asked, "What's that on your head?" <laughs> so he says, "Well, text." But uh, he was a tough one to play against. And there was guys like Kevin Knopp on Acadia, uh, which were really good players. Um, I mean, the league was this league was littered with uh, great talent, you know. And uh, in the U.S., it's, it's, if uh, if you're a hockey player in, in the country, you finish up major junior, this is the league that guys want to come to. There's a still kind of semi-pro and to a certain extent. You know, a lot of guys have left here and gone down the East Coast League and had success and moved up. So, yeah, so just, you know, you mentioned a few, uh, you know, just be, uh, being at St. Thomas and watching guys like Jordan Murray, uh, Philip Maia, you know, UMB is like a pipeline for, like you said, AHL contracts. Do yeah. you think that the CIS is really becoming an avenue for players to potentially play pro Uh in their future by going to, you know, good schools such as UMB? Yeah, you know, when you say pro, not necessarily the National Hockey League, uh, but other leagues around the world. Right. You know, we got Alex Peters as a client who just, um, who's a third-round pick of Dallas, played at St. Mary's, and played East Coast League last year. We had an offer from Europe for him uh, in the past week. Um, uh, Rapache, Anthony Rapache played St. Mary's, and He's playing East Coast League. He had an offer to go to Europe. He's going to wait till next year. Both of them are going to wait till next year. We had uh, another kid, Matt Welsh, played St. Mary's and up playing the American mm-hmm. League last year. And now he's playing in Germany. You know, there's all kinds of opportunities for guys that can still play the game. And if you're good, like a Derek Cormier played at, at UNB, you know, 20 years, 20 odd years ago when I was a hell of a player and ended up playing a 15 year career in uh, Europe and, and did very well financially from it. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, and, and so looking at the CIS journey, how, how did your coaching career help your, your scouting career? Because I know they intertwined uh, at Dow when you first started up with the, with the Washington Capitals. Yeah. Well, I, I started off uh, after my first year at Dell. I knew I had to learn more. So I, I, I was a volunteer assistant coach with the Nova Scotia Oilers. Um, with Ron Lowe and up coaching in the National Hockey League with Edmonton and New York Rangers. And I volunteered. I worked there and 
with Larry Kish, who was the head coach, and learned a lot about players and the way they talked about players in dress rooms. And then when I went to the Washington Capitals, you know, you've got Sam McMaster ended up becoming the GM of uh, L.A., David Poyle, Barry mm-hmm. Trotz was there, uh, Jack uh, Button, uh, Craig Button, uh, and Todd Button's father, and, uh, you know, Brian Murray and Terry Murray, and all guys, all NHL coaches or GMs, and Doug McClain was there, and a number mm-hmm. of the people went through that system, and Jimmy Schoenfeld ended up in the New York Rangers, and New York, you know, New Jersey, that had that Kowarski deal with the donut, right? You know, so mm-hmm. all those guys were there. So you, you learn, you learn so much with the game, you know, and then they tell you what they don't like with players when you go into, into the meetings and, you know, you sit there and you listen, okay, they don't like this about a guy like, wow, I kind of like that. Then you start questioning them later on, you grow a little more confident. You start asking them questions. Well, I see this in the guy, and, but you don't, you know, we start talking about things and, I think you learn by being around people who've had experience in the game. Right. How how long did it take for you to kind of get your voice and, and let it be heard in the room or, or have the the confidence, uh, for lack of a better word, to, to speak up and kind of say, well, like you said, you know, this guy is actually pretty good. If you ask me, I think this guy can play for us and be effective. Yeah. I, I you know, it's, it took a couple, a couple of years, um, because you're still young and still in awe of these people that are people you, you see on TV and you read about it. And you have some, you, over time, you develop more relationship with them like anything else. And you feel more comfortable speaking up. It took a couple of years for it. I remember one year they were, they, they called me up and the Nova Scotia Rollers were in, uh, or Sigils were now in, in uh, Halifax. And they said, well, we're going to trade for this player in the Citadels. What do you think? And I said, well, I've seen, I haven't seen him in a month, but I'll go down and I'll watch him. Again, the weekend they're playing back-to-back games, and I called them back on Monday. I said, by the way, who do you want to trade for this guy? And they were told, told me who it was. I said, well, that guy's a 20-goal scorer. This guy may never play regularly in the National Hockey League. They got to stay with a 20-goal scorer. This guy's right. not going to help us, right? So that was, you know, that was a point where they, they appreciated my comments, and they and it worked out well for from my point of view, uh, in that situation. Um, tell me a good, uh, David Poyle story because he's, uh, a guy that, you know, he's, you gotta be good at your job to stay in Washington as long as he did. And then being in Nashville now for, for 20 plus years, uh, what's he, he gives off a very kind of quiet persona, but what, what's David Poyle like uh, behind closed doors? Uh, David is a thinker. Um, he has list upon list upon list. He'll rethink everything he's going to do over and over again. And he'll sit in the meetings and he'll listen to everybody. And once in a while, he'll pipe up and make a comment. And you say, okay. But he just, he absorbs things before he makes his decision. And he just, he, he, as a, as a, it's like being a parent. He listens to both sides of the fence. Right? Mm-hmm. Your kid's story and a real story. So he <laughs> takes it all in and decides. Which is the real one? Right? But he's, he's a pretty he's a pretty thought, thoughtful guy like that. But uh, <laughs> probably this is not really this is a Dave Paul story in a different way. We were up in and uh, we're playing in Philadelphia's rookies up in a place called Wyoming, in New Jersey. And back then it was it's just a bloodbath. It's just this is like late eighties, early nineties, and the fights were going on. So we have a guy called Bruce Hamilton who went prematurely gray as well. Like mm. David did, 
and and it kind of looks like David away. So we're up there, and, and the fans are starting to holler at this Bruce Hamilton, who's now the owner and governor of the, of the CHL, right? And they're screaming at this guy, like, "Hey, they, they thought he was Dave Poyle, right? You know, Dave was the they was <laughs> right, right. Was, this guy always had a good police escort up because the fans were all over him, and the, <laughs> the people, the fans of Philadelphia, can be can be pretty hard on people, right? That's, yeah, that's a Poyle story that even they don't know David Poyle wasn't there. Right, right. Yeah. What was Philly like? You know, I've read books about the the Broad Street Bullies and, you know, about the the crowds, about I've heard uh, ex-players talk about how they were generally afraid to play there because it was just they had this aura about them. Did you feel the same way watching games uh, in Philadelphia? Well, well, no question. I mean, this, I don't know, afraid to worry about you were just, you kind of appreciated it. how passionate those fans were and how much in love they were with, with their team. And, you know, whether it's the Eagles or the Sixers, the, you know, or the mm-hmm. Phillies, the, the Philly fans are, are in, in it and they love, they're passionate about their team. Right. And it was the same thing in hockey. Those fans loved it. You know, we went to some ranks where we had actually had, you know, the guards, our guards, the gates to get, you know, the, get us in there. But uh, they were, they're, they're, the, the fans loved their team. No question about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you joined Washington, which was a new, newer franchise uh, in the NHL. How what was it? Did you guys lack um, not money, but say, did you lack scouting? Did, did was it you were behind, were you behind the eight ball compared to other franchises because you were so new and you know you didn't maybe didn't have the the luxuries that other franchises had at that time. Well, I was in there when when. When David Poyle came in, things turned around. So mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to be there. He traded for Ron Langway. Um, and we had defense with Scott Stevens. We had Sylvia Cote. We had Ally Afraidy. I mean, we, we had four defensemen who scored 20 goals in the National High Club, which is unheard of. Right. And we had guys up front that could, you know, from Dale Howard, Chuck, and, you know, and Mike Gartner. Like, there was, there was no shortage from that, even though they were a tightly run operation. We always had top ends. The problem with our franchise was that, when we were good, there was also a team called Pittsburgh that had a guy like Mario. Right. You know, you know and that, that's when the early 90s where, you know, yeah, we, we were, you know, probably the second best team in the league. Unfortunately, we had to go through uh, Philadelphia, I mean, uh, to Pittsburgh to get to the finals. I mean, uh, they had guys like Joey Mullen and Jaeger coming up, and, you know, they, they were, they were you know, Ron Francis, like they were Paul Coffey, you name it, they had it. So we were unfortunate that we were a good hockey club, just wasn't our time. And that's the same way at the housing sometimes. We were good hockey club at Dell, but we had a better team called Acadia, which is the goal that you better than us. Right? And they were national champions. Right. Um, just as a general overview of your career as a scout, when your team is in contention and we see teams trade away first or second round picks, obviously that you're not going to be able to pick as high in the draft. How does that change your job as a scout, knowing you're only going to be able to select a player in the third, fourth round? Well, I mean, it, it, it doesn't change, but you're still putting your list together uh, because you, you believe that something may happen at the draft. Um, you know, because there's trades that happen to the draft, the following draft. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we were in uh, Tampa Bay and we, we traded the fourth overall pick, with was it Yoni Pinkinen, uh, and uh, to uh, Philly, the fourth overall pick. And we got back two second round picks and um, Bruce Lenford Tanko. 
And Roos and I scored two goals in the championship, the game seven that we won the mm-hmm. Stanley Cup. So if you're going to trade ground first round picks, it's well worth it when you win the Stanley Cup. Right. That, you know, uh, Brad Lukowicz also in a trade um, in that deal that helped us long term as well in terms of depth on winning that cup. So when you trade, it's fine, but you're still going into the following draft thinking that maybe some the trade's going to happen. We may move up or whoever we pick the fourth round, we hope it's going to play. Right. The preparation doesn't change at all. Um, have you was there ever a scenario where you had a player ranked high and the GM went in opposition to you? And how frustrating was that for you? Well, first of all, it's not when you're when you're part of a scouting staff, it's not one person that makes the decision on and usually there's a crossover guys that come in and, and look at the players like most teams have these three crossover guys. So maybe a guy that come that we, we put a list together, say from Quebec, then guys from right. West or Ontario will come in and watch. So they do it as a group and they use it's a group decision uh, and they finalize it. Um, you know, there's those guys I had ranked late that guys kind of liked and we, we drafted higher than what I wanted them. And that happens. These other guys, crossover guys like them better than I like them. And that's just the name of the game sometimes you but you, but you pick team, but you pick players as a team, and then team in terms of group of staff, scouting staff. Right. Um, so after leaving, uh, you were in Washington for a while. You then went to Nashville, uh, and that was, uh, you know, a new a new franchise. Uh, that uh, how how was that experience different from from your time in Washington? Well, that was great because I I just signed a contract with David Poyle. And then he left. Then they, then they removed him as GM. And then I, I left there. Went to Nashville with David. Got out of loyalty, and got on my contract in, in Nashville. But the great part is that we we started we started building the team the year before we actually came into the league. So right. we started from ground zero, and we actually were involved from all the decisions. There was a small group of guys like Craig Channel, myself, Barry Trotz. Uh, Paul Gardner was with us in Washington. Paul played in Pittsburgh and so forth. And David Poyle and, and, and Ray Sherrill was there. And Paul Fenton was there as well. So we had a, a small group of guys that ended up to be involved in all the stuff from the, from the trades, the development scenarios of who we can get, uh, who are available in, in terms of the, the social draft and so forth. And so that, that was a great experience because you're starting learning all kinds of different things that are how the league actually does work in the insides. Right. So was it, would you say it was similar to what uh, the Kraken did this past year and a half? Yeah. Yeah. Totally different, but they, 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 they had a, they had a better, uh, the rules were better for them than they were for, for right. us. I can tell you that. And I think that's one thing that the national hockey league learned from Tampa Bay and, and all of the other expansion teams in the past is that you got to give these guys a chance to win. Uh, or be competitive out of the door. Like they got to, right from the beginning, they got to be able to compete because you're, you're spending a lot of money to buy the expansion franchise. And a lot of times you win the markets like Nashville and Phoenix and, and so forth, and whether it's San Jose. Now, these are all markets that aren't traditional hockey markets. And if you want them to succeed, you know, nothing brings in a, into the fans in the building quicker than a winner. Right. I, I, Vegas, right. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. That. 
the the rule yeah that the rules are definitely different for, for you guys uh seeing what yeah. vegas did in their in their first year it almost seems unfair at this point but it, yeah, it's one for seattle now too because teams have learned right like you know mm-hmm. like you, th- you think like anaheim you know they gave up uh shay theodore mm-hmm. they do it all over again would they do it i don't think they would do it the same way they did it so teams no. learn that it's better to lose one asset than two or three assets Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Alex Tuck can be the same story in Minnesota. Yeah, he, he turned exactly. out to be a pretty, pretty good player for, uh, yeah, he looking on them right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he, he would for sure. Yeah. Him and Kaprizov, I don't think would be a bad pair actually on, yeah, on exactly. the, on the same line. Yeah. Um, so oddly enough in 1998, Vinny LeCavalier was selected number one and Nashville, which you were working had his second pick and you guys, took David Legwand, who yeah. uh, turned out to be a great playing over 1,100 games in the NHL, yeah. uh, a great Nashville Predator. Um, what did what did you make of Vinny's game at the time? Because, you know, your story, obviously, it, it's, it, it goes full circle because you end up in Tampa Bay. Yeah. But what did you make of Vinny as, as a prospect at the, at the time of, of his draft? Well, obviously, Vinny was the – Vinny was – about level above everybody else. He was one, everybody else. There's a lot of guys at two, three, four, right? So he was a level above everybody else's creativity, his skill level, you know, he, he, he was a, you know, he was a, you know, version of Mario, for example, you know, like not that same caliber as Mario was a true superstar, you know, was there, but he was a star, but Mario was a superstar, but he was a skilled guy with all kinds of talent that could lift the team up. Right. And, uh, Nash and uh, you know we we lost the lottery whatever it was at the time and it would have been great to get number one but uh, that's the way things go but you know Leg one ended up having a great career too you know he played a long time in the league and mm-hmm. still contributing to hockey. Uh, so after like I said after Nashville it's funny how this works you end up in Tampa Bay where in that draft they took Lecavalier they also took Brad Richards uh, in in the third round. Yeah. Um, so what what was that like did you know when you joined tampa bay that you were that you, this team was close to being a championship contender or a potential stanley cup winner oh no question no question you know they, they you see the moves they made over the past couple of years um between nashville i was in i was in Montana as gm for a couple of years right two years and i joined uh, not, uh, tampa bay but um, you know, for a team that you talk about low budget teams, we were a very low budget team in Tampa Bay, even though we won a Stanley Cup. Um, we had an owner who also owned the Pistons that, you know, didn't really see hockey the same way he saw basketball. And, you know, and the reason was that the, the financial situation in, in Tampa Bay, even though we were third or fourth in the league in attendance, our, our ticket sales were in the bottom 10 of the, of the 30 teams, you know? So even at that point, a team like Columbus, their ticket sales, their average ticket was $25 more per game than our ticket. Wow. You know, signage would, would sell for $25,000 in Tampa Bay, would sign for 250,000 in Toronto. So the whole economics of it all, you know, we were at the bottom end because they undersold it early in the, uh, they came in the league and it hard to play catch up, but now it's, turned around it's become a, a viable ticket where people want to you know it's a it's a demand ticket now even though we were selling like we had great fan support at one time you could buy a, a 
you could buy a ticket at a game for fifteen dollars twenty years ago. You know, can't yeah, I, I wish today. I was around for that. <laughs> Good luck today. <laughs> yeah, you can't even yeah. get to a Wildcats game for fifteen bucks no, exactly. now. So, exactly. um, yeah, were you in the building in for the game seven, two thousand four? Yeah, yeah, we were there. Uh, ironically enough, um, we, we were in Toronto at the combine doing interviews and testing and all so forth uh, for the draft and during game during the, the finals because we were down we were down earlier for meetings, uh, you know, in, in the playoffs. Get to see the first round and and they got to the finals there. We were supposed to we were, we were in. Uh, we won game three. We were, think it was, we were going to fly out to Calgary, meet the team, and we lost, you know, one or two games. Well, I forget what it was now, and ended up. Uh, they said, "Well, if we win this game, you're, you guys are coming in." And we got to the point where we got to game seven. Oh, sorry, got to game seven, and then next thing you know, we're flying. After we win game six in overtime in Calgary, we they call us if you get down there. And I, my first response was, "Well, what about the cost? Don't worry about it." That's the first time I heard that. <laughs> in Tampa Bay, the, in the eight years I was there, <laughs> don't worry about the cost. So it was, uh, we flew down, we got, got, got on the phone and made kind of a ticket and flew it the next morning. And it was a, a great event. Yeah. What was, what, what, do you remember when the buzzer sounded? What were your emotions like in that moment? Well, I mean, you, you, uh, you you're really happy. Um, you're really thankful that you're part of that journey. And then you, you kind of think back to all the people that helped you throughout the game and people help you get there. No one wins on their own in anything in life, whether it's hockey or business. You have got to have people behind you and you got to thank those people on the way and you got to think of them and the contributions they made because it's not you. It's everybody else who's, who's been involved to help get you there. Uh, are you, do you have your Stanley Cup ring on right now? Yes, I do. Yeah, I thought I saw it before. Do you mind uh, lifting it up? Oh, I yeah, yeah, that's that's oh, that's, oh, that's pretty oh. sweet. Yeah, that's pretty yeah, sweet. No, it's it's funny. I thought I'd wear it for you. I know you, your 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 uh, <laughs> your cousin asked me to uh, wear it, so I make sure I have. Yeah, it. yeah, no, I'm gl I'm glad you did because um, the only people I see wear them often is uh, Kiprios when he used to be on Hockey Night in Canada. Oh, yeah, he yeah, used to love yeah. to wear it. Uh, oh, but sure. if I was like like yourself, if I won one, I'd be wearing it all the time. Yeah, I used to wear it all the time, and just because the kids liked, I'd give the people to wear, and they would take right. pictures. It brought them a lot of joy. But then diamonds start to fall, falling out, and I had to send it back, get repaired. So now I don't wear it that often anymore. Um, but uh, people love the joy of it. My brother has two of them. He won uh, two at Pittsburgh in the early nineties. So right, mine, my ring here is, is bigger than his two rings. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And they're white. His are white. His are yellow gold. I got the nice right. white gold. Yeah. Right. I, I, I like that. I like that. Um, that I mentioned that team. You know, Le Cavalier, St. Louis, who's now in the Hall of Fame. Brad Richards, Jed Javi Bulin. Yeah. Who do you who was do you think was really the heart and soul player of that 2004 championship team? I think Marty St. Louis. You know, his, his engine was was huge. Um, you know, Brad Richards was just. I mean, I don't think there's just one. You know, mm -hmm. you had Dan Boyle on the, on the back end. They're just, right. you know, and you had so many players that, you know, again, you got guys that stepped up. And, you know, and, a guy, and those guys were all young guys at the time. You know, they were all, you know, mid-20s. And, 
And Tortorella was a great coach with them because he pushed them. And you know, th- those guys liked them. Those guys never complained about how he pushed because he made them better. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and the players saw the, re- the results, right? You know, Vinny just kept on getting better and better. Mario Brad, who was a third round pick, was the people didn't think he could skate well enough, but his brain was so so good, his passing skills were so good that he, he made him he made everybody look like holy cow, why would we take this guy in the top ten? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so those guys were just good players and, and worked tired. They were committed to commit to winning. That's the big thing. And uh, Torella, if you know Torella, like he he's twenty four seven. He's all in. Like, well, he he would have a bed in the, in the coach's room watching video like four or five in the morning. Wake up at seven, seven back at her again. Mm-hmm. Like you know, he's his work ethic was phenomenal. Like he he pushed those guys, but he also pushed himself harder. What was he? Is he a bigger character as he portrays in the media? Well, I, I think he's more passionate than people realize in terms of and compassionate. You know, like you know, like those guys. I said, many of those guys like him. You know, Murray loves him. You know, those guys talk very highly of him. You know, think about Murray St. Louis. You know, and there's a guy that I remember Jack Button sending me down to the University of Vermont to watch him play, and then him and Peran with the big guys in college hockey, but they're small. And I was with Washington and. He says, you know, these can these guys play? I said, they can play in the American League. Yeah, mm-hmm. American League guys, I don't know they were playing the National Hockey League because those guys weren't usually playing in the NHL back then. Uh, right. Then he goes, then he signs with, uh, I think it was maybe St. Louis, plays in the American League as a, on an AHL contract. Then he plays in the end of another year in the American League. Then he gets signed by Calgary and, and he's put on the fourth line and they put him on waivers, clears waivers, no one picks up St. Louis. He comes to uh, Tampa Bay. And when Dudley was there, he brought him in and says, you're going to be, you're going to either play the top two lines or you're going to play in the American League. You know, and after 10 games, he wasn't playing a whole lot. And he talked to the coaches, got to put him up there. And then, you know, they put him up and he had success. And then Torella comes in and just pushes him even farther. And, you know, and Marty has such a great work ethic that uh, didn't matter how hard you pushed him, he's just going to respond. Uh, no, being around Torts, uh, I don't think he loved his experience at TSN, uh, but do you do you think he'll be a good member of the media now that he's uh, joining ESPN this fall? <laughs> the funny thing about Torch is that we weren't around Torch a lot at Scouts. Right. Still from, when, I, when I first joined National Hockey with Washington, we'd be in the coach's room every day during training camp, and we'd be in meetings talking about players. Um, so Torch would, would show his face maybe once a meeting. Outside that, we mm-hmm. never saw him. Right? right. All you know is the stories that people tell you from the office and, and watching them work and those type of things. So I think Torts, you know, he's going to give an opinion, um, just like, you know, Brian Burke did. Brian Burke did a great job. People loved him. And, you know, he's, he's uh, matter of fact, and, you know, his point of view is right on. He's, you know, there's no hidden agenda in it. He's just told like he saw it. Right. And I think you're going right. to see that with Torts as well. Uh, you mentioned uh, while you're before Tampa Bay, you took a job in Moncton as a general manager. Yeah. Um, what is there as much pressure as it seems, you know, there seems for me as an outside view working in Moncton, because it seems like there's a lot of, a lot of pressure to, to be good and be uh, good very quickly in Moncton. Yeah. You know, Robert, uh, Robert, Irving is probably one of the best owners of major junior hockey. Um, you talk about a guy who loves the game and wants to see his team be do well and have success. And 
you know, I would call you in the middle of July at a Friday night at 10 o'clock at night. That didn't mean anything to him, you know, because he, he wanted to win, right? And he wanted to uh, know what you're up to and know how the team's coming around. And But he was always, he was always there. He wanted to know what all the decisions. He was very hands-on, um, you know, even though that uh, I left that team and, uh, and joined Tampa, you know, we still have a great relationship. You know, we, I saw him last night at the game in Moncton and he always sees me screaming my name out, hey, girl, right? Then he comes over, we shake hands, we talk with the team and we're out to happen around major junior hockey. But, you know, if, if every team had a passion owner like him, this league would even be better in terms of the Quebec major junior hockey league. Because really? He's a compassionate man. Like he doesn't, he hates missing a game. And, it, uh, you know, I know he's been uh, very good to the game, but he's also been very good to the community in, in, in ways that go unnoticed that uh, when you're behind the scenes, you see stuff that he does for people. And uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. Now, when you say hands-on, does that mean like making hockey decisions or did you have, you know, the Brian Burke philosophy, both hands on the wheel and then, you know, Robert's there, but not directing, you know, hockey operations? No, Robert, Robert has been around, he's learned a lot over the years with the game. Um, but he wants to hear what your point of view is before you do anything. And if you, and if you do it, he wants to know why you're going to do it. Um, but usually 99.9% nonsense lets you do what you want to do. Um, and if you ask for something, you better give him a good reason why you need it or why you want it or why it's necessary. And most of the times, if he feels it is, you're pretty much going to get it. Right? And, but he right. doesn't know why. And if it's a for its good reason and make a decision, then it better work out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he doesn't forget. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. So being the GM, how how difficult is it to run, you know, entire hockey ops department or, you know, kind of man the ship of a, of a team uh, compared to, you know, your scouting, looking at players, how, how was that transition for you? Uh, look, it, it, I loved it. And uh, I like what I was doing. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're there. I, I'm the kind of guy that I'd be every day. I'm, I'm in, I'd be in the city, whether it's Moncton or St. John later on. If I was not in the city that day, I was watching practice. I sat in the same spot, same seat. So the players would see me. The coaches knew I was there. I'd go down and talk to the coaches about what's happening, what was happening on the ice during practice, you know, and, and talk with the players, uh, be in the dressing room talking to the players, not about the coaches, but you know, how their life's going, how their day's going, how their family's doing, how school's going. But you always want to communicate with the players and have some kind of relationship with them. Um, hockey ops was easy because the scouting background was easy. And then the coaches, the coaching staff, you know, you hire people to coach and you give them the responsibility to coach and let them hire them deal with their own staff. Right. That's their responsibility. Something happens, got to go to the head coach. You know, if something happens overall, Robert comes to me. It's not going to go to the head coach first. He's going to come to me. What happened there? Right. So it's, uh, it was an enjoyable experience. I, I loved it. I love being a GM. You know, you make the decisions and you, you, you can really implement your own philosophies and draft strategies as you see fit. Uh, yeah. And it's so different from the NHL where the Q it's really a quick window where you can have two to three years of really big success. And then you have to overload and you start fresh. 
So uh, looking at your entire career as a GM, yeah. how, when, when do you know that you're, you're going, you're going to go all in? Is there, is there a certain moment where you're like, okay, we're going to plunge this year. I think we can win a president's cup. Yeah. I mean, it was different scenarios. Like for example, when I was in, in Moncton, I, I was hired. They really got at the team. You were left with three players that played a total of 50 games for a total of one goal. They were left wow. with three overage players or four overage players, almost no draft picks. So we were gutted. So we, we started from, it was like college recruiting. We, we went right across the country in the U.S. finding free agents. And kind of implement what those guys, the guys we have, and then, and then we were, then we brought, we had, we got really lucky in the European draft. We got uh, two players that ended up being pretty good for us. Um, then Christmas time, we were in first place, you know, in the division, which was mm-hmm. all smoke and mirrors. Right? Right. All three ages, people were like, what's going on here? So, <laughs> Robert and I had a meeting, and he says, uh, "What do you think of things?" I said, "Well, I'll put together a five-year plan." So we put together a five-year plan to win. So it, it meant going from first place to last place, you know, and, and rebuilding and, and trading off uh, like guys like Johnny Adoya, who had a long NHL career, mm-hmm. getting a lot of players back like Jimmy Sent and James Sanford back for him, trading the late Trevor Ettinger uh, and getting back a first round pick, which became Corey Crawford, right? And those became the basis of the team that we And we got Steve Bernier first overall in the draft, like finishing last. And, and we had a high European pick we traded off. And then we got Patrick Thornton later on in the draft and we used a lot of those draft picks that we got back from Hall that turned into other players. And Thornton ended up playing in the National Hockey League. He's got 120 points in the league. You know, so you, then we, we then I left after when they got good. I left. I went through the bad years that I left when they were what they could turn the good years. But in, in St. John it was a little different. We were we were we were just on we were in the first year of a rebuild, but I came in and pretty much moved about 12 players out and brought new guys mm-hmm. in. Again, a lot of free agents that ended up being pretty good players and ended up getting lots of draft picks back and, and developing there. Then I think 16, 17, in the year 16, 17, you know, we had some like 16 players going to the National Hockey League training camps and about 12 NHL draft picks on our team. And that's when we started going for it. And they won for it and they, and they won. And I was gone at that, at that time, right? So they won. Uh, yeah. That year, so they they had that was the year to go for it. But at the same time, I think they could have St. John could have won the league, you know, without making a trade at that point. Yeah, so, yeah, I rem- I remember watching them uh, that year. They were loaded. Uh, they 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 had a very very good team. And one thing that not many GMs or you know even being involved in hockey can say that they did is they took a player with exceptional status. And you were part of the of an organization that took Joe Valeno uh, yeah. for, for the Sea Dogs. What what made Joe? Uh, what what made Joe? You know, have the ability to be be an exceptional status player in, in your eyes. Well, the fact is, his hockey sense, compete level, his size, his skating for his age. You know, he, he was playing a year up, and then Triple A midget and came back and excelling. Went to Canada Games and excelled. You know, th- those are things that champions are, you know, do. They they, they perform above their above their <laughs> above their weights, and he did that. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, and he competed with the best, and and, and Sean, right? 
and we knew he was going to grow and you know, he was going to get stronger. But we were lucky to take him because he was lucky to come to us in the sense that we had, like I said, we had 16 guys going to the NHL camps at that time and a number of NHL picks on our team. And we could insulate him on our team. So he, 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 he an exceptional status, he didn't have to carry the load. He's going to be in the right. third line. He was a centerman. You know, it was tough for a 15 year old centerman to come in our league. It's tough enough for 18 year old centermen to play in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. But he was able to play the wing until he learned the game better. And then as a 15 year old down the middle, you know, playing all four corners of the rank, it's, it's difficult. One against 20 year old mm-hmm. men. Right. So we did it a few times. He got eaten up and he, he went back to the wing and uh, it's, he had lots of success on the wing. Then by his seventh, by his sixth year, we moved him back to the middle. He grew a bit even more. You know, so, but his hockey sense was, was very good. His compete level was very good. His will to learn, his will to compete, will, willingness to work were all exceptional. Yeah, he's he's had an up and down career. So obviously, great World Junior experience uh, the last time we seen him play. He's, I think I believe he played in Europe last year. Uh, yeah. Do you do you think he'll be an NHL player uh, by the end of his career? Well, he is an NHL player. You know, like you know, last year, he went over to Europe because of uh, America didn't start till after Christmas because of the COVID. So he went over mm-hmm. there to, to, to play, you know, to get himself ready. Then when the European season was over, Detroit allowed him to stay over there. The European season was over, he came back and played in the National Hockey League with Detroit, and he's penciled in this year to play, and they're you know, probably the top three lines. But uh, he's an NHL player, there's no question about that. Uh, yeah, you've given me so much of your time and I, I appreciate, it, but I have to ask a few questions about Vancouver before we wrap today, because I, I find it that so interesting as well, because you go from Tampa, really successful, uh, tenure there, obviously you win your Stanley cup and then you go to Vancouver and while well, your early years here, they had some really good teams. Obviously you had hall of famers in the Sedins, future hall of famer and Roberto Luongo, yeah. uh, uh, he, what, what are the Sedin twins like? Uh, you know, I, I haven't, people are kind of coy about them, but what, what are they like, uh, just, uh, as people? Uh, they're outstanding people. I mean, what they do for the community in Vancouver is, is, uh, is amazing. Like they, they give, uh, they're not takers, they're givers. Uh, they got a great personality. They're all about team. They're all about family. They're all about community. Um, you know, there's, they're very, like the very uh, open people when you know them, um, you know, Thomas Gradine, uh, which, which was a Vancouver legend on the Scotty staff. So he knew the knew them very well. And, you know, all that, Thomas would always be over there and you see them at the airport, you go talk to them. They're very friendly. They're very open. Uh, I mean, those, those guys, uh, you know, those guys carry the, the weight of that Vancouver franchise for a number of years. And, and they, you know, did it at a very high standard, you know, I know what the situation with Boston in 2011, which was my team, mm-hmm. another Stanley Cup ring, right? Fifty thousand dollars, probably bonus money, right? But uh, you know, they were uh, they were in a, they were no win situation, right? And, and everybody says, why do they retaliate? If they retaliate, people are going to say, well, they lost their cool, they lost their composure, they got out of their skin, right? right? They don't retaliate. They say, why are they doing it? Not retaliating. So they're going to know in situation but the way they thought the game was beyond for two people was beyond anything i ever saw you know you know they you know, you had the shot and the flares and those guys and but these guys here were, were totally different the way they controlled the puck and the way they 
changed the way a lot of people play. Were you in the building for that game seven? My whole family was. My whole family unfortunately missed it in Vancouver. And we were down, in my, I brought my family to Tampa Bay for the Philly series. Mm-hmm. And, and they missed two weeks of school for that, but that's okay. <laughs> well worth it. Me, yeah, my wife would let me fly them back into Tampa. No, 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 we got school. Can't miss any more time. Like, it's game seven, right? So <laughs> they weren't there. But the next year, we, uh, uh, when we went to 2011, my kids were a little older. They're in university and high, high school and all that. And uh, there was no way that she's going to miss that this time. So we were out there for games five and seven. So it was pretty exciting when we were there for the riots, obviously. And yeah. Stuff that's true because we left the rink about an hour after the, uh, game seven and you know the police said go down this route around here so you can get back to your hotel then we got the hotel there's security there then we had to show them our keys and our ids now we get to the hotel and then let us leave the hotel you know and the hotel was running out of food and drinks which wasn't very good either (laughs) 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 we were finally staying up you know we were finally staying up late you know as the old saying goes you know win or lose hit the you know what (laughs) right right (laughs) so we were up there. We were drawing our sorrows, and there. Uh, but it uh, was a it was a night that you don't forget because you know you, you see the joy of a team when they win it in Game Seven. The whole city, the way it goes up, and you see the opposite. What happens when people, very few people, get out of hand and can turn chaos, you know, into the city and you know cause chaos and be disrupted to what uh, should have been a you know a civil celebration of the fact that we got the Game Seven. Right. Well, that was a, right. How many teams get there? You know, we had a guy work with us that had, had been in pro hockey 58 years. It was his first time in the finals. Wow. You know, and pretty impressive. He was 58 years, you know, being in pro hockey. That was his first time in the finals. It's, it's not easy to get to get there. People don't realize how tough it is, it is to get there. There's, you know, only 5% of the people who play the National Hockey League win a Stanley Cup. Wow. It's not for many. Yeah, so, that – yeah, I, I didn't realize it was that low. That, that's yeah. that's a cool statistic that yeah. you know, it even yeah. amplifies it more. That if you do win, it's people that win multiple. You know, they're yeah. really you know they're really in rare air. Yeah, no, exactly. And you know it's tougher now. Like it was tough back in the sixties. You know, they were, you know pre you know there was six original six. It was tough to win it back then. You know, and the Montreal Canadiens and teams like had dynasties back then and early eighties with the, you know with the New York Islanders and. You see with the Edmonton Oilers for a while, but mm. uh, Pittsburgh had you know their two shots at it, early nineties and early you know the two thousands there. But it's tough to win back to back. You know it's tough to win one. You know when you look at New York Islanders last year, for example, you know they yeah. game seven won nothing, and then ironically the the goal that was scored was a shorthanded goal, and that was the first shorthanded goal they gave up all year by an undrafted player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Yanni Gord. So yeah, oh. exactly. So it's, 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 there's a fine line between winning and losing. And it's, it's so tough to win. Right. Uh, I totally agree. Uh, you, it, one last question. This is more of a fun one for me. But in Vancouver, <laughs> as you get into later rounds of the draft, you know, yeah. I think of seventh round picks. And I have to yeah. ask you, what was the what was Vancouver thinking about when you selected my good friend Sawyer Hanna? Uh, in the seventh <laughs> round, did you, did you guys just run out of paper or what happened? No, there? no, 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 no. Jeez, you know, it, it was, uh, we went to meet. 
Right. <laughs> right? You wanted some meat, basically what it was. You need someone who, who, who had some toughness to him, who competed hard. Um, the fact that his right hand shot defenseman helped as well, because they're hard to find. But he was able to play hard and physical and, and be a good teammate, stand up for his teammates. And, and you got guys like some deans out there and, you know, and you know, other guys, you know, you know, you need guys to stand up for him once in a while. And he was the type of guy that they're hoping to develop into one of those guys that can play in the National Hockey League and take care of uh, business when I need to be called upon. Yeah, no, I, I'm just poking guy. fun at him. I, yeah, I no, he's a great, great guy. I watched a lot of, I watched them all growing up for the Flyers and going, I watched almost every game he had in Halifax. So I'm, yeah. I'm only joking. I, uh, yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed watching him scrap every once in a while as well. <laughs> well, the funny thing is the, 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 the work ethic he had as a player and then his commitment to being a player, you know, staying in Halifax in summertime training and instead of going back to Rexton with his family, he stayed there, mm-hmm. he was committed. It was kind of work ethic and commitment really are part of why he's a successful businessman at a young age. He's done very well for himself in the business world. And I think those are the attributes that he developed they, as a young person and they had developed in hockey and displayed hockey where things have transpired both to the business world and even the success he is. Right. T- totally agree. Yeah. Uh, Daryl, you've done so much in the game, but you're still, I know you're still a, a hockey junkie. Uh, can you tell me what, what you're up to now and where people can kind of tra- track what you're doing? I work for a company called Maloney uh, Thompson Sports Management Limited. It's Guelph-based, Guelph, Ontario. It's a player management company. We have young, top young guys like Noah Dobson, you know, Liam O'Brien coming in. We have lots of young guys coming in. We have 60 guys playing in Europe. So we're, we're a player management company. Um, we're, we have a different model than a lot of agencies. We don't charge for our services until the player turns pro. Uh, so I'm working with them as a player rep, rep in Atlanta, Canada. And I also do uh, player development with them. And, you know, I, I do a number of things that can go on the Phoenix, the rookie tournament, because we got about eight guys playing in that tournament with Anaheim and, and uh, LA and, and Phoenix. And I'll go to Europe and do some scouting over there from help to help the recruiting process over there of players to our, our agency. So right. it's, uh, it's, it's still scouting and you know, mm-hmm. guys give me a hard time. They think because I'm now work for a player agency that I've gone to the dark side, but uh, All right. <laughs> I, I, I explain to them when you're when you're scouting or coaching, you want to see your players do well. So do we. We want to see your players have success. Right. So do we. we want to hey, see well, players develop. Bobby Orr develop. did it, so I think I think you're in good company. Uh, you oh, know, Bobby Orr is outstanding at it. Bobby Orr is outstanding at it. His name alone. So uh, no, I think you're you're in good company, and it, it, obviously a fantastic career. So congratulations to all your success and. Thank, thank you so much for joining me today, Daryl. I know uh, I've taken a lot of your time and on a beautiful day here in the end of summer, so I, I really, really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. No, anytime. Good luck with your podcast, and uh, I'll be following it. All right? for, well, I, I appreciate it. Everybody, thank you for tuning in today. Uh, I'll be back soon to talk to all of you, but until then, stay safe, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Noah.